Well, good morning, gang. It is Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. If you're waking up today still slightly full and maybe a little bloated, then congratulations. You did Thanksgiving properly yesterday. Uh, and I hope that uh, today you get to have at least uh, a little bit of rest, a little bit of uh, an extended time of Thanksgiving. It's never, never a bad time to give thanks because there's always Always, even in the harshest of circumstances, something we can give thanks for, if not our very breath, that is in fact still a gift from the Lord. Well, today we are continuing looking at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. We're looking at 11, 17 through 34. Um, and uh, this, this passage is not nearly as weird as the passage from last week. If you remember, if you were with me, then you know that last week's passage was a real doozy having to do with uh, women covering their hair and uh, needing to, or women having a head covering and making sure that they did it for the angels. And it was all a bit strange, but I at least attempted to try and break down what could have been going on there for you. Now Paul's going to move on to something that seems a, a not quite related, and that is what they're doing around the Lord's Supper. Now, in most of the letter thus far, Paul has been addressing things that he has heard from or, or that he has heard directly from them. They've written him about various issues they're facing, divisions and lawsuits and sexual immorality and all sorts of other issues. Uh, in this passage, he's going to talk to them about something he's heard from someone else that is reporting back to him a problem they've noticed in the church, and that is what happens when they gather around the Lord's Supper. So let's dig into that. Verse 17 of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Indeed, uh, Paul has already spent a great deal of time addressing those kinds of divisions throughout the letter. Now, in the first part of the letter, the first couple chapters, Paul addresses divisions based on who their favorite teacher or preacher or pastor is. And they've sort of, you know, chosen sides. I'm team Peter, I'm team Apollos, I'm team Paul. And even some, you know, the really pious being like, oh, I don't need any of them. I'm just team Jesus. Well, it, Paul sort of addresses that and says, no, 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 you're all team Jesus and stop trying to be, uh, to break up according to, to teacher. We're all on the same team here. Um, now he's going to address a different kind of division, and that is between rich and poor, between elite and basically, uh, you know, the masses, the rabble. Uh, as much as we'd like to believe that uh, societal, social, cultural differences just go out the window when we gather together as the body of Christ, unfortunately, as we see with the Corinthian church, uh, it's, it doesn't always happen that way. It takes time to beat that out of us because it is in the very air we breathe. And we are not any more immune from it today as people were back then. Class often can find its way into the church even if we're not being conscious of it. I'm reminded of uh, some of the churches that you'll go to see in New York City where uh, there are basically reserved seats not anymore but when they were built there was certain seats that were in better positions that people actually could pay money for to reserve their spot in that seat well of course who got the best seats in the house well it was it was the elites in new york city because everybody was expected to go to church therefore the rich and the wealthy got the nice seats and the rabble of course got the leftover junk in the back so it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for us to bring in these societal norms into our churches. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. 
He says, I, I hear there's divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genu genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul, on the one hand, says there are divisions, and frankly, some of this is revealing who the true from the false is, who the real from the fake is. That's normal. But here's the problem. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Yes, folks, it's just as it sounds, that's what was happening. There were basically people gathering at the Lord's Supper, and the rich were eating all, they were not just eating the bread, but they were also bringing their own food and not sharing it. They were basically filling up. They had made the Lord's Supper into a feast, and the supper with mere bread and wine just became a part of it. Uh, and as they were doing this, the poor oftentimes didn't even get a chance to eat the bare essentials of bread and wine during the supper because these, these elites were getting drunk on the wine. Now, I know we like to have the sort of idealistic version of the early church in our head that like they just sang, sat around and sang kumbaya and shared everything together. Well, there was a time that that was true in Acts chapter uh, 2 at the very end, but it doesn't take much of a biblical scholar to recognize that about two chapters later, <laughs> the strife begins. It does not take long. And here you have such a blatant example of that. The elites with the money are getting literally drunk on the communion wine and eating everything so that the poor don't have even an opportunity to gather to receive the body and blood of Christ at the supper. It's sort of unfathomable, but it's true. It happened. So Paul then goes over again what the meal is really all about. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what's communion supposed to be about, folks? Corinthian church? It's supposed to be about remembering and proclaiming the death of Christ for sinners. It's supposed to be about everybody receiving together both the body and the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It's really that simple. What you guys have made it into is this elaborate meal in which people are getting drunk and people are, you know, absolutely gluttonous and the poor are left behind. Like it's the complete antithesis of the point of this meal. The point of this meal is for God to dispense his gifts and you're hoarding the gifts. So Paul says, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
Now this deserves a little bit of attention. There are basically two views to understanding what Paul is saying here. One view, which is quite common in Lutheran circles, Roman Catholic circles, Eastern Orthodox circles, you know, et cetera, um, maybe Anglican or Episcopalian, those who hold to uh, the idea that Jesus is really present in the sacrament, as Lutherans do, um, they sometimes, oftentimes, will read this and hear Paul saying that to drink the cup and eat the bread in an unworthy manner is to fail to recognize that very real presence of Christ in the supper. And therefore, what this becomes then, these set of verses become sort of a litmus test to determine whether someone is worthy, because you don't want to be unworthy when you're eating and drinking, is worthy to have this meal. In that case then, what you'll find is churches will say, you have to believe, you have to know that Jesus is really present in this meal in order to take it rightly. If you don't, then you are guilty of bringing judgment on yourself. Now that's one view and that's there are good exegetes that believe that, there are good scholars of scripture that believe that. I take a bit of a different approach, and this would make me maybe a little bit controversial in my own world, but I do it because I think the text demands it. I believe this is not specifically saying that one must have the proper understanding that Jesus is really present in the, in the bread and the wine, which I do believe is true, by the way. But I think this goes actually to the contextual issue that we're dealing with, which is not discerning the rest of the believers around you. That to drink and eat in an unworthy manner is to fail to recognize that it's for all, that it's not just about you and your gluttonous or, or uh, debaucherous ways. The reason I say that is really uh, what you read in verse 29. Paul says it this way, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He does not say for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and the blood. Well, what do we use the body for in scripture besides discussion of communion? He'll actually go on to talk about it in the very next chapters. The body of Christ, the church. Paul refers to the church as the body throughout all of this letter, and especially as we continue on. And so contextually, both before this, this, path, this set of verses and after you have this use of the body used to describe discerning the church around you, that fits well with what Paul is addressing here. These people weren't doing that, and that's what he wants to correct. Therefore, verse 30, Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In other words, people have faced judgment, but they faced judgment not because they, uh, of their view of the supper, um, you know, what was actually going on there, the, the dynamics of it, because frankly, even the best of us might not be able to entirely describe what's going on there, except that we know Jesus said he's present and so we believe it. But what everybody can be capable of is willfully ignoring the welfare of their brothers and sisters around them for their own personal gain, hoarding the supper to themselves. 
That's what I think Paul's really addressing here. And so he says this, verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may, may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul is making it clear that they're actually even seeing the consequences of their selfishness as they come to the table, as they have gotten sick and God has allowed them to face judgment. By the way, another argument against the idea that, um, you know, this is an argument for people seeing the real presence of Christ in this passage, which again, I believe in, I just don't believe that this is being addressed specifically here. Um, folks, there's a whole lot of Christians, as a matter of fact, the majority in America that gather together, take communion and do not confess that Jesus is really present in the supper. And, um, there's no evidence to suggest, no data, none, that would suggest that any of them are getting any more sick or dying at higher degrees than Christians that do believe in the real presence. It's just not there. And so there is just a very kind of, <laughs> you know, practical point you can make about it. Like, I'm not seeing Baptists fall like flies because they don't confess the real presence. Um, so anyhow, that's a separate issue, but I just wanted to make note of that. So here's the point in all of it, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What about the other things, I will give directions when I come. And that's alluding to other things that, we'll, that he'll address later on. But the point is clear in this passage. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a time where all of us are actually brought to equal ground before the foot of the cross. There's maybe nowhere more clear, nowhere that, that that's, that's more clear in the Christian's life than when one comes to the altar, whether rich or poor, no matter what societal background, no matter what cultural baggage they walk in with, no matter what sins they have struggled with during the week or committed in, uh, in their past, everybody stands before the altar needing confessing they are sinners in need of the body and blood of Christ that has won for them salvation and has earned for them forgiveness. That's the idea. Heaven forbid we do anything to prevent people, no matter where they're coming from, from receiving that gift because that gift is what this whole thing, what Christianity is all about. All right, that is it for 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll take up chapter 12 next week. I hope you have a great weekend. Join us.